Hello and welcome back to the Heart-Led Wellness Podcast. I am so excited to have you here and if you've been listening to all of my episodes so far, you know that I love to talk about food and our bodies and our nervous systems and all things holistic health and wellness, but today's episode is a bit of a bonus, fun, different episode. It's actually a fun story of how I came to meet this guest on this episode. So a few weeks ago, if you remember from a previous podcast, I mentioned that I took a little trip to Seattle and while I was in Seattle we stayed on on an island called Bainbridge Island which is a short ferry ride from the main city of Seattle and on this island one of our uber drivers was this beautiful man that this podcast episode interviews his name is Dr. Michael Brain And he started talking in our Uber ride about his job as a travel psychologist and how he created this field of travel psychology and his some of his stories and he seemed like a very interesting man i was very intrigued by his work and what he does and his passions in the world and he gave me his little flyer his business card and when i got back to colorado i looked him up on google and decided that i wanted to have him on the podcast because i felt like it would be a great conversation to have something that is not focused around food or body. I often talk about how when we are healing our relationship with food or we are in the holistic health world, we can kind of become obsessed with healing ourselves and doing everything quote unquote perfect with health and wellness. And a huge part of healing from this obsession is listening to things and reading books and learning things that don't have anything to do with health and wellness. So I hope that this episode can be kind of a start of that journey for you with listening to a topic that is fascinating and exciting and fun to talk about, which is the psychology of travel. And we also talk about some other fun things like UFOs and paranormal and synchronicities and fun topics like that. So I hope you can listen to this episode and kind of take a break from the food body wellness obsession and just really enjoy this conversation that I had with Dr. Michael Brain. I am so grateful to have had him on the show and I really hope you love and enjoy this episode. Thank you for listening like always and I cannot wait to talk to you again next Tuesday. Now let's get right into the episode. All right. Hello, Michael. Welcome to the podcast. I am so excited to have you here. Thanks for being here. And thanks for having me as a guest. Of course. The question that I like to ask all of my guests to start out the episodes is what is something that makes you your most heart-led self? Because my podcast is called Heart-Led Wellness. So what is something that connects you to your heart and takes you out of your head? I think that would be having a fascinating conversation on one of many of the particular subjects that I'm really into. Like Mm -hmm. most of us probably feel the same way, but I like an engaging, challenging, creative conversation. Mm, Me too. I'm right there with you. (laughs) Well, I would love to start out this episode by asking you to share a bit of your story and how you became the travel psychologist. What does that mean and how did you get here? Um, Very good. I was kind of a lanky, geeky, nerdy kind of science and math high school type. Uh, And 
I got interested in lots of different subjects like all, all of this. <clears throat> I was on a track to become a chemical engineer at first. Wow. So I, I spent one year at Carnegie Mellon and I thought, uh-uh, no, I'm not going to be working with chemicals all my life. So I went back to my home city where I was born, which was Philadelphia, and I uh, enrolled at Temple University, and I got all excited. I wanted to do something different, <clears throat> and I majored in psych and uh, took languages and uh, was all excited to be back embarking on some kind of new direction. Well, I did my bachelor's and my master's degree in, in psychology, kind of a combination of clinical psychology and maybe industrial psychology and personality. And now it came time to do a PhD. So again, I paused and I thought to myself, do I want to deal with clinical psychology the rest of my life, which is important, but I didn't know if I was up for really dealing with problems of people for my whole life. By then I had been bitten by the travel bug and uh, I just had taken a trip to Europe with two friends and I thought, oh my God, this is where my heart is. This is where my interests lie. This is where my motivation is. And what did I do then? I tossed away a full four or five year fellowship offered to me by Temple University if I did clinical psychology. And what did I decide? I'm gonna create a field and study the psychology of travel at the University of Hawaii, which was like 5,000 miles away. Well, <laughs> I think my parents, my parents could not believe that I would do such a thing. And I left the big gray, dreary, but nice city of Philadelphia and went to Hawaii in the summer of 1965 and it was all uphill after that. I thought to myself, well, if I'm going to study for my exams, I might as well sit in a beach chair under a palm tree. And that's exactly <laughs> what I did. But I got all involved and excited and interested in what is the psychology of travel all about? I mean, uh, you know, we had sports psychology, but we never had uh, a field of study that really looked into what's involved when a person picks up and goes to a totally new culture. Well, it was a perfect example of that. Hawaii had a mixture of all kinds of peoples from all over the place. And I took different languages and I studied everything I could about the psychology of travel. I even worked for the University of Hawaii's Peace Corps training program for a while as a psychologist. And I was right there in my element. I took the Tongan of a language the language of the people of the kingdom of Tonga, which <laughs> half the radio audience, TV audience probably doesn't know about, uh, and uh, kind of became a teacher's pet because I was so good at it. I was so motivated along with my other responsibilities. So there I was, PhD in hand, uh, invited by the University of Maryland to teach for a couple of years in Europe. And I set off and I started thinking What's the best way to learn about the psychology of travel? And I came to a conclusion, something like Forrest Gump would have come up with. Well, why don't I just ask travelers? And I interviewed, <laughs> I went about interviewing about 
couple thousand travelers while traveling around Europe in my Volkswagen bus. And I kept up the interviews and did about 2,000 interviews and collected thousands of stories of people telling me about the most interesting, wonderful, great, terrific, exciting, horrible hotel from hell, <laughs> some of the worst experiences, and I started writing about it. So that catches you up with how that all happened. Wow, what an incredible story. It's and pretty interesting. Yeah, and I love that you really were able to listen to your heart and you know have that be your guiding principle for what you wanted to do. And it ended up leading you to creating a whole new field that didn't even exist. And here you are impacting the world in your unique, positive way. So I really love that about your story. Thank you. Yeah, of course. And something that I really love about travel myself coming from somebody who's a very routine oriented person. And a lot of the people that I work with in my coaching practice are also really routine oriented and have a tendency to kind of stick with our rules and we have everything kind of perfectly laid out in our daily lives. And something that I love about travel is it forces me out of my routine and it forces me to kind of let go of all of those daily habits and rituals and rules that I've created and be in a completely unfamiliar environment. And I find that it's often kind of like medicine for my soul to travel. So I'm curious what your perspective is on that and if travel can be kind of a form of medicine for ourselves. Absolutely. Uh, what it does, I, I just was thinking of the analogy of, you know, how you take a, a sphere that has snow in it and it has like a little snowman scene and all that yeah. and you shake it mm -hmm. and then the snowflakes start coming down mm -hmm. well one of the early things i discovered about travel and taking a close look at travel was the idea that it really shakes up everything it just you know shocks you out of your routine and in a, an exciting way you're, you you get this thought, well, this moment is the first instant of the rest of my life, and uh, I'm going to shake up my life, but in a positive way. And I discovered early on in my interviews with people that what travel does is opens you up unbelievably to the experience of learning and being rewarded for that learning in a way that cannot be accomplished any way else. You know, you have to be plucked out of your environment, put into a new environment, open yourself up for all the new exciting and mostly positive stimuli that are going to come your way. And I don't see a faster way to learn. And learning is exciting, especially when you get rewarded for making good decisions. So, you know, when you're, looking for a best Western near where you live or where you're traveling locally. It's not that big a deal. But when you are confronted with another language situation and you need that roof over your head, you need that coffee, that mocha and the pastry and the meal, and you need to maybe ask somebody a question. Well, there you are all open, ready to receive and excited at the pace of each little success that you have is so reinforcing and so rewarding that you are now moving up that pyramid, the Maslow 
pyramid that we all have in psychology one or psychology 101 that all your basic needs as you take care of them and get rewarded and reinforced and you move up that pyramid and what's at the top of the pyramid to be all that you can be to achieve and become all of or closer to your potential and it's all exciting because you're rewarding yourself for good decisions and mostly it's all good positive wonderful stuff uh, but some of it is related to safety and security too and oh you might have an occasional uh, low point lower point relatively so for example peace corps volunteers that go to a totally new culture they're armed with a very basic understanding of the language but they're not that good yet and they get to a point where it could be over a longer period of time a possible low point we call that like culture shock and what happens is by doing what travel allows us to do is to become all that we can be or more towards who we want to be you get past that low point and all of a sudden it's it's all positive from there on and the culture shock is over you've worked your way through it so we get little bits and pieces of that, but mostly if we're not going to be staying long-term somewhere overseas, uh, it's all so rewarding and exciting. And we fulfill that thing that we've always heard, today is the first day of the rest of my life. It's exciting. Mm, yes, and I love how you said that traveling opens your heart, because I have never explained it like that, but it totally does feel like that. It's kind of this this newness, this excitement, but also kind of a refreshment, refreshing yourself of who you are and what your values are and what's important in life. And, and, and travel is just one among, I know mm-hmm. that you deal with all ways of opening up your heart. Uh, mm-hmm. And we can do that in a number of ways. But this was my focus, my particular focus. Yeah. The 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 idea of traveling and what it does. Yeah, I love that. And another thing that I'm thinking about that I love to talk about on my podcast is self-esteem and confidence and, you know, trusting ourselves and really becoming firm in who we are so we can share ourselves with the world in a more steady way. And I'm curious how travel can play a role in that. Does travel help us with our self-esteem in any way? Absolutely. Uh, The moment we reward ourselves for learning something new and making a good new decision, uh, the more that uh, uh, spurs us on to, to doing more. And, and let's face it, most of the people that we encounter in travel feel the same way. They're all eager to personally grow and they're all eager to do the number one most rewarding accomplishment in travel. And that is ta-da, to connect with another person, maybe a perfect stranger, to connect and have a more genuine uh, interrelationship with a person uh, by this process, by means of this process. Mm-hmm. That is so beautifully said. But why do you think that some people isolate themselves and you know avoid travel? If travel is so good for us and it helps us grow in this way, what are people scared of when we self-isolate and don't travel? Well... Uh, at the time, the same time, everything that all new and exciting 
uh, it's also a little scary. It's a little frightening. This is new. Uh, you don't know. You may not have total success. Uh, I mean, you know, we learn. Uh, you might uh, find yourself wandering out in a rainstorm, not having successfully found a place to stay overnight, for example. I mean, there are challenges on the way, but that too is exciting. The more that you can deal with and overcome challenges and be successful, the braver you become and the more you are willing to uh, maybe go outside the box a little bit more uh, and, and experience something that is a little newer, a little maybe a little anxiety provoking, but the rewards are too great and too successful to be dismayed. Uh, it's it's in travel. It's becoming it's morphing from the tourist who is relatively superficially and uninvolved to the traveler who has learned and been rewarded successfully for doing new behaviors that have good positive outcomes. And the more you do that, the more you learn, the quicker you morph or change or develop from being just a tourist who is very uh, kind of remotely uh, connected to somebody beginning to have more genuine interactions and developing relationships with other fellow travelers and local people. Mm, I love that. Can you share maybe some tips on how people can, you know, make that transition from a tourist to a traveler? Well, the tips are on my website. People can go mm -hmm. visit my website. May I tell them where that is? Yeah, of okay, course. which is my name, www.michaelbryan.com, M I C H A E L B R E I N.com. I have uh, all sorts of interesting things that can help you uh, look at these questions. For example, I have a couple of articles on how to become a better traveler mm. or how to morph from a tourist to a traveler to an adventurer. We can go even further or maybe to an explorer as somebody that does something totally new uh, for, you know, compared to most people. Um, there are, it takes some time to change from being a, kind of a, a, a tourist on the sideline, getting in a big protective shell like a bus, a tour bus, and not venturing out too much on one's own. But as you do begin to try it a little bit and experiment and become uh, more of the traveler or adventurer, uh, you find that so exciting, so rewarding. Uh, that you want to do more of it. And you get more experience. It comes naturally. Uh, it's exciting that it's easy to do. Uh, you just have to be willing to put your toe out a little, a little bit. Just step in that water, you know, sample, sample life more. And there's no better way than traveling, I think, to do this uh, quickly and in such an exciting way. Yeah. And I really love this whole concept of kind of pushing ourselves just a little bit outside of our window of tolerance, as I usually talk about. And when we do that, 
it reinforces the trust that we have in ourselves and it shows us that we can you know, do something a little unfamiliar or challenging. And then with that new sense of confidence, we can try something new again. And it just creates this loop of feeling more confident and trusting our bodies and life more. Well said. I, I couldn't put it any more succinctly than that. <laughs> it looks like you've had a lot of practice in opening up the heart chakras of people mm -hmm. and helping them to do that. Travel <laughs> is just one way to do that. And mm -hmm. I know that you involve yourself in other forms, right? Where people do open up their hearts to exploration and, and growth. Yes, exactly. Thank you. And another thing I wanted to ask you about is how we can find some gro grounding or regulation. I know that the traveling process can be kind of chaotic sometimes, especially at the airport. I know for myself, I tend to get really overwhelmed when it's crowded and loud. And from talking to all of the people you've interviewed and from your own experience, have you found anything that can help make it more easeful? Well, the very simplest and probably most obvious uh, piece of advice I can give on that is the four-letter word that begins with T and ends with E, time. <laughs> if you allow plenty of time, then you have more time to explore. You have time, more time to deal with things that make you anxious. You have time to breathe, take some deep breaths. Look at the situation and realize that you are do not have to be in a hurry. Mm -hmm. It's hurry equals anxiety, mm -hmm. I think. So that, to me, is for people traveling through airports, is build in a few extra hours. You know, you there's so much to explore in airports. Just walking around, observing people and looking at the shops and going in and opening up a few magazines that you might never have looked at. Time. Time is on your side. And time is the most valuable commodity, I think. That's important. An important, valuable commodity when you travel. Yeah, I love that tip. And it makes so much sense. I can think about times when I've been in a super rush at the airport, like trying to catch a flight and how anxiety provoking that is versus when oh. there's extra time to just lay around and get some food and yeah. And here, here's another thing that I think people have not been that much aware of in the psychology of travel. Mm -hmm. Think it's hard to remember back before COVID-19, you know, COVID changed people in more ways than they like to think psychologically. Mm -hmm. I've observed some things about the psychology of people that they may not have been that aware of through COVID, but I began to notice it pretty soon. And I want to give an interesting personal example. Mm-hmm. Uh, of this part of how we interact with people is how we interact with them spatially, how we interact with people gesturally, 
how we interact with people with our eyes. And what do we do? We mostly take this for granted. And we mostly have not even been aware of it. So I had one particular friend, a coffee house buddy that I would sit and have some coffees with him and his wife. And he was a more touchy-feely person. Want to shake hands, pat you on the back, maybe give you a hug, mm-hmm. look, at, look in your eyes. And uh, on the first time I saw him at the outbreak of COVID, he wanted to shake hands. And I said, no, 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 let's fist bump. <laughs> and I have not seen him since COVID has ended, but I've seen his wife. And I had a conversation with his wife. And I said, you know, I remember the opening, the beginning, and the start of COVID when I fist bumped your husband, Ollie, and I've been looking for him ever since, especially now that COVID's over. I wanted to give him a warm hug and say, it's good to see you. I hadn't seen him the whole period of COVID, which was like several years. All right, people hardly have been aware of their conversation distances, how much emotional connection, physical connection, distances, eye contact, I had another experience when I was in Morocco, and this had nothing to do with COVID. I'm crossing the street, and I see a Moroccan woman all covered up, you know, except for her eyes, and she walked past me, and she went like this. She Mm -hmm. winked at me, and Mm -hmm. I went, oh, my God, what does that mean? What to make of that? You Mm -hmm. know, then I started thinking, travel psychology, and I started thinking, well, there's a whole world of interpersonal distance and contact and emotional connection and nonverbal and eye contact. And I started thinking of what that simple act of eye contact meant. So I'm merely trying to use the example that mostly we've been unconscious of these things, not realizing the impact it has on us. And I think As a result of COVID, people became more distant from one another, not entirely understanding why. I'm just suggesting these are a few things that are all involved in that whole process. And I think that uh, uh, as people are beginning to reconnect a little bit more in these subtle ways, uh, they're more comfortable and happier and, uh, and not entirely understanding why. It's a little part of that that I noticed yeah being a travel psychologist yeah and it makes so much sense and that plays a huge role into travel because you're in crowded environments and you're around people that you haven't met before so yeah it's a huge thing and with COVID in the mix that would make it even more difficult Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially to connect to people who are unfamiliar when you're trying to keep a distance from them or, yeah. And that's all a cultural thing, too. Mm -hmm. When you travel, you learn more of the impact of these things. You know, like kissy-kissy in Europe and France, you know, all these people are kissing one another on the cheeks, mainly females doing that, but um, male to female. I mean, it's 
the mm-hmm. whole new thing there. But I'm not going to get into that, but <laughs> that's part of it. I mean, it's all part of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another question I have for you is how do we cope with or understand the concept of travel blues? Like when you come home from a vacation or a trip or a traveling experience and you just kind of feel down and why does that happen and what can we do? Yeah. In the extreme of that, it's a a very common experience for Peace Corps volunteers who are returning after two years and in uh, you know less developed countries, uh, they see they learn a whole new way of living than what we're normally accustomed here. Material possessions and things, and what we have, and how much money we have. Those are all much more important to you before you've experienced living in cultures that don't have that, or to the degree that we have. Uh, so Peace Corps volunteers come back or people working overseas for long periods of time or miss people on religious missions, for example, for long periods of time. They come back and they they have a, a period of what's often referred to as reverse culture shock. That is putting yourself back in the environment that you left uh, where the values are different. And that sometimes is uh, anxiety provoking I see I've seen this uh, I've understand uh, understood that this can happen and uh, yeah some adaptation uh, is necessary but on the other hand if you've been a traveler and you've had a lot of traveling experience and you have been uh, have experienced some of these cultural differences and differences in values uh, you know, it gets easier as you travel to accommodate and bring back the good things and apply them here, uh, back home. And often it's sometimes recommended that people do more stay staycations. That was a popular term in the 19, uh, in the 2020s and beyond. The staycation was a little mini preparatory vacation for maybe going to an exotic overseas area that why not uh, begin to do some of the benefits and activities of travel right in your own backyard? Why not go to that little museum that you've passed every day and never went into? Why don't you go to a town that's not too far away and become a visitor to that place and walk around and interact with the locals more than you might do normally at home. Go into the Ma and Pa store. Uh, Go to the vegetable market, you know, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And it's making me think about how we, how you were saying we can apply what we've learned on a travel or a trip to our everyday lives. And maybe that concept of getting to know the local people or, you know, communicating in a different way we can use those skills that we've learned traveling and actually apply them to our daily lives have you seen that happen? get out of that get out of that tour bus and start <laughs> walking around and interacting with people mm-hmm. in the local markets and the little shops mm-hmm. do that explore yeah I love that so much I can definitely apply that to my own life more and talking to people more even with like 
the people at the grocery store checkout. I always try to have conversations with them and get to know them and know their names. So that way they know my name and it just makes and it feel fun. More, yeah. It's fun. It's what you do when you travel. It's what yeah. you're more open and more willing to do when you're in a, a new environment, mm-hmm. you know, with uh, unbridled by uh, making everything absolutely dependable and not having to think for a moment in your daily life, you know, trying to make your daily life unconscious and regulated and un, uh, uneventful. That's mm-hmm. what a lot of us do when we're home and in our routines, just make it predictable so that when I'm done doing all these things and I can be myself and expand. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I was just talking about this concept yesterday with somebody in my life about just trying to like get through the daily routine just to like get to the weekend or get to the evening versus trying to make the actual daily routine something that you look forward to and that's full of connection and community and enjoyment. So I think you can see by our conversation that there's a lot going on in travel that a lot of people just haven't thought about, didn't realize, uh, realized some of the benefits, but didn't know why and didn't absolutely see a connection between going somewhere new and becoming the more uh, accomplished person. They just don't often realize it or think about it. And I think that was my accomplishment is um, doing this and trying to give back a little bit by way of books that I write. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that so much because even before I met you, I was like, what is travel psychology? I have no idea what that would be like, but it totally makes sense. And there's so much going on that we're not even aware of that's impacting our minds and our emotions and our daily lives when we go on traveling experiences. So in my writing, I I don't uh, particularly write about Europe on $5 a day that used to be the Mm -hmm. calling thing. I didn't write so much as how to get the, the perfect hotel room for yourself or how exactly, uh, you know, to to live your day-to-day, moment-to-moment travel life, I based my writing and what my contribution could be uh, to people who travel or want to travel is to interview a lot of people, which, like I said earlier, that I've done about almost a couple thousand times, and uh, try to find out within each interview what it was in particular for that person, uh, for a particular experience that they had, how it affected them, changed them, enlightened them, protected them. It was more of what people could say that was good and wonderful uh, and, and and had an impact on their lives rather than uh, A to Z and 1 to 10 of what you should do or should not do or where you should go and what you should see or Mm -hmm. not see. I concentrate mainly on safety and security in travel. One of my books is called Travel Tales Idiots Abroad. And I (laughs) want to introduce myself as one of those idiots because (laughs) I have some incredibly funny personal experiences uh, that makes up that particular book. I'll give you one. 
Please do. Uh, I don't know how many people in your listening audience have ever heard of what a bidet is. <laughs> bidet is a bathroom appliance mm -hmm. that is found largely in France, but other places increasingly. And I thought it was a foot washer. Oh. I thought, oh, this is what you put your feet in and wash your feet and rinse your feet and all that. But we did something a little different. Then that three college guys traveling together, we packed our wine bottles in ice in this bidet. <laughs> and uh, of course, from then on, the staff at the little hotel that we were staying in collapsed in laughter onto the floors. The minute we went by, and I remember one girl saying to me, looking at me and saying, you do not use that for that purpose. <laughs> it is not a foot washer, and it is not a wine cooler. And I will leave it up to you to explain <laughs> what a bidet is. <laughs> Shall we say it is just part of a bathroom routine discovered and used by the French and others? Mm -hmm. Some hygiene. imaginations. Yeah, some bathroom hygiene. hygiene. There we go. Yeah, bathroom hygiene. <laughs> not a foot washer <laughs> and not a place to cool your bottles of wine. <laughs> That's so funny. I can only imagine how many stories you have after interviewing all these people and also your yeah, own experiences. And, and let me just say at this point that a very small percentage of the stories were on the strange and the weird and the paranormal, including some people's UFO stories, mm -hmm. ghost stories. Mm -hmm. um, my most recent book is Travel Tales, Ghost Encounters. Mm -hmm. So, and that's another thing. Travel opens you up to some of the paranormal and psychic things that you would not normally expect. Mm -hmm. uh, you can have those too. And people share all sorts of good and wonderful experiences. And I may add, in my concentrating on safety and security, uh, I pull no punches. I do tell in a number of my books, especially on destinations, some of the things you really have to watch out for and be careful about. And I did write a book on uh, travel tales, solo women travelers mm. um and that's a it's a heavy duty book because it deals with some of the unpleasant troublesome things somebody's got to do it and i thought i should write these books not everybody really wants to uh, read that but i also for the same token i've just recently written a book travel tales toilet stories <laughs> now why that of course the bidet stories in that book but why because i discovered when uh, traveling around my vw bus that i had for two years in europe that uh, one of the first things that people talk about at the beginning of the day they get together for coffee and pastries and all that well how was your toilet experience this morning <laughs> you know we talk about that you talk about all the aspects of your life so anyway a whole series on safety and security and humor mm -hmm. and, you know, especially safety and, and things that you should be careful of mm -hmm. and so forth. 
Yeah, I love how you really like address all the aspects of travel. And it's something that I really wanted to ask you about that you just brought up was about any stories that you would want to share about paranormal or UFO or strange, rare things that have happened? Well, I think, I love that yeah, uh, definitely. Um, I want to share one of the things that has happened to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of my, I discovered pretty much, I mean, I knew I had a side of me that uh, uh, I had some psychic things happen in my life and I paid attention to it and just write it off. And I didn't care what other people thought. I People didn't think of me as crazy, uh, at least that. But they thought that I really got interested in this stuff and paid attention to it. And you can do that. You can't always be a graduate student and you, you have to toe the line and not get too off the uh, beaten track or whatever your discipline field is. But I... All right, I'm going to give you one of the uh, psychic things that has happened to me quite a bit is synchronicity. Mm. That is a seemingly chance, unbelievable chance happening of running into people. I ran into this one woman three times on three different beaches around the world. Once off of Lido Beach in Italy, off of Venice, another time in Hawaii, and I can't remember the third time. And I and I almost said, well, you know, we have to stop meeting like this. <laughs> wow. Three pieces. But but I had a quintuple synchronicity. You want to hear that one? Shall I yes. share that? Yes. Uh, okay. I had at one point developed a series of uh, travel guides. Not so much current these days, but how to sightsee and travel uh, in different cities by public transit. For example, I would take the subway system map with the permission of the city, in this case this is Prague, and put the top 50 points of interest on this map and then begin to tell you how to go to all these specific places to the nearest subway stop or metro stop. And I did it for Paris and London. I did 14 cities in all. Now they're kind of dated, uh, but the major attractions are still there and the major Metro lines don't change. They add new stops, some more lines, so on and so forth. Well, I was living in Southern Oregon. I had a llama ranch at the time. And I was going to fly from Oregon to Philadelphia the end of May, visit my sister, then take the train to New York City and go to the book fair, uh, book, uh, I can't even think of the name of it. Uh, It was a big book show every year. This one was in New York City. It was going to be on a weekend. So I visited my sister. I took a train from Philly to New York. Uh, This was at the end of May. On the plane from Oregon to Philadelphia, I grabbed a Hemisphere magazine from United Airlines and put it in my attache case, didn't even look at it. I thought, gee, that I ought to tell them about my travel guides to sightseeing by public transportation. And uh, maybe they'll do a review of it. Why not ask? No harm. So I'm taking the train now from Philadelphia to New York City. And I see a sign that says Rahway, New Jersey. And what do you sometimes do when you see the name of an obscure town? You You think, oh, I know somebody who was from there. (laughs) So I thought to myself, I remember Jan Chaikin 
in the fraternity some 42 years earlier at Carnegie Mellon, then called Carnegie Tech. I didn't know him real well. He was a senior. I was pledging a fraternity. All right, so Rahway, New Jersey, Jan Chaikin. I now am in New York. I do the book fair. I show my travel guides to publishers and book buyers and whatnot. And now I'm on a plane, and it's now June. Just a week, long weekend and a week visiting my sister and relatives. And I grabbed the next issue for the new month, June, Hemisphere Magazine. Put it in my attache case. Don't do anything with it. Now I'm on the plane back to Oregon. Okay, a long weekend and a week added in. And a big pile of mail is on my desk, kitchen table there. I see a big white envelope, Hemispheres Magazine. Oh, that's the one I have both issues in my attache case. I open it up, and it's got a little card stapled to it, see page 24, whatever it was. I open it up, and there is a review of my travel guides right in the magazine. <laughs> so I thought, oh. great, great. And I have the two magazines, you know, May oh. and June. Well, that's pretty interesting, huh? All right, next thing is go upstairs to my loft office, look on the internet. Did I have any sales of my travel guides from my web page while I was gone? Usually, you know, I'll have one or two or three. Sometimes I got, let's say, somebody from Mexico bought a guide, uh, maybe somewhere in Kansas, uh, somewhere in Europe, you know, and I look at it and I have one sale. Oh, well, not many, but one sale. And where is it? It is down the street, literally, from where I lived in Ashland, Oregon. I was outside of Ashland. It was just a couple of miles up the road. The people living in the house there ordered it online. So I emailed the person and I said, would you like me to personally deliver this to you? Or would you like to come and visit a llama ranch and see what a llama ranch is like? And they said, we'll come to the llama ranch. Hmm. So they're going to come later that day, stop by. And then I'm looking at the name of the person. This was the wife, I guess. And she was the one that ordered it. And I looked at the last name. And it's the same name as the person from Rahway, New Jersey. Oh. So I email back and I said, do you by chance have a person named Jan Chaikin living at your address? J-A-N? And then I get a phone call maybe half hour later and I recognize the voice from 42 years earlier, I didn't know him well, but I recognized his voice. And he said, I would be that Jan Chaikin from Rahway, New Jersey. Wow. I sang him the fraternity song. <laughs> I said, do you remember that? Did you ever sing that song? He said, nah, nah I never did. But he did. He lied. <laughs> yeah. Because when he was pledged, he'd probably have to sing that song all night long, mm -hmm. pledging for the fraternity. So they visit. And I said, how did you happen to notice these travel guides of mine? And he said, oh, 
we were consulting with the New York subway system on safety of different stations, crime statistics, and we saw what you've done with these travel guides, so we ordered them from the Hemisphere magazine article. Wow. So I ask you, the chances of all that happening by chance or accident is about the same probability as the number of stars in the universe divided by into one, you know? So that is my quintuple synchronicity. I've had two triple synchronicities. I've had many double synchronicities, uh, like a lot of us have. Mm -hmm. So I had to draw the conclusion that I, um, one of my psychic things is, is synchronicities. And I became myself one uh, subject in one of my books, in my in one of my series. This is <clears throat> the Road to Strange series, the Contiguous Universe, and it's about forty or some people, including myself, who have had from my interviews, excuse me, and from all my interviews with people, not only travelers, but I also interviewed people conferences, UFO conferences, and paranormal conferences, collected stories, and I found at least 40 or so people, myself being one of them, who have had repeat experiences of paranormal, and in some cases, person having repeat UFO experiences. So I thought, why not write a book on uh, people with multiple experiences and see what they describe and um, you know, what they've learned and what we might know of it. So that's just one of four books in my Road to Strange series, mainly based on travelers. And then the other series is Travel Tales uh, and a variety of safety and security type books. Mm -hmm. Wow, wow, wow. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that story. And I... It's fun for me to do all this. Oh, yeah. I'll tell you, it's a lot of fun and I keep telling all my friends and relatives, I'm going to be recognized for my writing in about 437 years. <laughs> oh my goodness. I think one thing that I, I feel like you're the same way. I just have like a super curious mind and I'm always asking like, why, what's the purpose of this? What's the purpose of life? Like, are we alone? All these like really big questions that humans have had for so long. And I would love to hear your kind of answer to this since you have interviewed so many people about strange and UFO experiences. Do you think that we're alone? Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. But I have a slightly different perspective than most people. I'm going to share that in a moment. Mm -hmm. I just want to say that I have been somewhat caught up like a lot of us. I look at some of these TikToks. <laughs> you know, and they can be really mesmerizing, can't they? Some of the interesting things. And one of the things I find myself drawn to is, is people uh, on TikToks like Neil deGrasse Tyson, the terrific scientist that he is. At first, I was a little ticked off at him and thinking he's not as open-minded to the idea that some UFOs might be alien spacecraft. He was not as open to that as I thought he could be. But he talks about so many different things, and he and he's great, and I and I love listening to him. And there's several others. I love Michio Kaku when he's on there talking about science, 
Uh, anyway, so so let me tell you what where my perspective is a little different from most. And that is, uh, imagine this picture in your mind, people from the 15th century, century dressed up in robes and being the intellectual elite of the day, you know, and they would say, well, astronomy is all astrology. You know, uh, uh, mm -hmm. we who are astronomers are also astrologers. And then a few centuries later, people were saying, oh, no, 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 no. Astrology is different from astronomy and all that. But the people in the robes had a certain way of looking at things and paradigms. Let's call them paradigms. Well, I think, for example, the Hadron Collider, where they're throwing particles, at molecules and atoms in these tunnels that circle around. And I think of that as almost a little bit like throwing rocks at coconuts to get the coconut to fall down, tell us something and teach us something. No, no, I, I really respect the science that people are doing, but I think our vocabulary, our paradigm is more like thinking in terms of earth, air, fire, and water. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. we laugh. <laughs> yeah, we mm -hmm. think more than earth, air, fire, water. But our paradigms of the time are made up of concepts. So we often joke how the Inuit, also known as, not such a good expression, Eskimos, mm -hmm. have many, many, many words for snow and ice. Mm -hmm. And so when they look at the scene, a winter scene up in the Arctic, they're seeing a scene in a wider frame of reference than we are. We don't think in uh, as many terms as they do about that. So science in 2023, I jokingly refer to as looking, in looking at in terms of earth, air, fire, and water. But 100 years from now, 1,000 years from now, we're going to have many, many, many more terms and concepts by which we look at the universe. So where I'm leading with all this is that uh, Leslie Kane, or sometimes called Kane, K-E-A-N, who, uh, who I've known from the UFO field and is a great writer and a great journalist. And she's basically one along with Ralph Blumenthal, who published an article, I believe, in the New York Times, I think it was 2018 or maybe 2017, and they broke the UFO subject open, wide open, after the U.S. Navy began reporting, uh, seeing these spectacular craft over uh, off of San Diego in the Pacific uh, and could not explain them. I'm not saying necessarily they're extraterrestrial craft, but Leslie Kane came up with the expression, I think, of non-human intelligence compared to the common terms UFOs, space aliens, mm -hmm. aliens, to suggest that the form of human intelligence may be multi-dimensional some of them may be space aliens extraterrestrials like we would think of simply other peoples 
from other planets, but non-human intelligence might also entail different levels of the universe that we may not have enough words to describe. We're thinking of interdimensional as one. Okay, earth, air, fire, water, interdimensionality. Uh, it may be a broader paradigm or framework of understanding the universe a thousand years from now in our development than we're aware of now. So mm -hmm. I just say that our paradigms have to change so that we have enough concepts to understand all the stuff, marvelous stuff we're dealing with. So I think the UFO subject, including the paranormal subject and all these 14 F-O-R-T-E-E-N, E-A-N subjects uh, that we credit to um, Charles Ford, I think his name was Ford. Uh, so that's my nutshell explanation. And not a lot of people think about it this way, but that's where I've come with this paranormal stuff and the UFO stuff. Some UFOs may be extraterrestrial aliens, but they may be all sorts of other possibilities as well that we just don't have the concepts for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's take. I love that because I agree with you when we don't have even just the basic language to describe it then it's impossible yeah, to even go. understand it at all. I totally agree with that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's it. That's where I'm at with all this stuff. So I hope to think that the writings that I do through the stories of other people and through my experiences with a lot of people in the paranormal field and ufology, I hope that I could share a slightly different perspective uh, at least it gets us all thinking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I love thinking that. thinking is like another form of travel, mm. is it not? <laughs> <laughs> it is. I have loved this conversation so much. I wish we it's could fun. I, I didn't okay. expect where this conversation was going to go. <laughs> I like to do these podcasts because I like to have a way of expressing creativity, which mm -hmm. moves me along. Mm -hmm. a little bit so every time i retell some of my stuff i think about it in a slightly different more verbal way so mm -hmm. that's what i did i decided not to become a chemical engineer not to become a clinical psychologist but to investigate travel and see where that leads mm -hmm. you know in thinking and growing and blah 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 yeah well i'm so glad you listened to your heart and chose that path because just imagine if all of us did that, if we all chose to listen to our intuition and do something that was new and yeah. different, we would have a really beautiful world of people who are all following their passion. And it's incredible. So thank you for choosing. And I'm that. happy that I could be on your podcast talking about this, maybe in a little different way than you've talked to other people. Hopefully, yeah. at least it's my path. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I was really happy to be able to share this. What is one of the books that you've written that you would recommend people to start with? Like if they weren't sure which book to read of yours first, which one would you choose? I think uh, the one that I'm getting a lot of movement on is what I call The Road to Strange, A Psychic Reader. Mm. 
And basically, when I mentioned uh, four, 14 subjects, this was uh, taking a look at all the strange and bizarre sorts of things. So in this book, uh, because I started out the road to strange, uh, do, writing a book, two books with Rosemary Ellen Guiley, who was the most knowledgeable person I ever met in the subject of paranormal. And she invited me to do a book series with her. And we started out and we did these two books. And she passed away in 2018. Mm. And we lost a great person. And so we were going through all of my material bit by bit. And we did the first one was very fittingly travel tales of the paranormal because she knew that I had done all these interviews. Mm -hmm. And then the next one we tackled was UFOs and aliens. Mm -hmm. All right. Now I had tons of more material, but there was no longer Rosemary to write them with. Mm -hmm. And she gave me a really good word of advice. She says, Michael, when you write another book, make it like 250 pages, mm -hmm. concise, readable, and all that. So then I went on to do two more books in the Road to Strange series. And as you can see, they're like 600 pages. <laughs> <laughs> because I didn't have Rosemary to work with and to start doing the new titles. So I, I decided I didn't know how many more I was going to do on that theme. And I had enough material to pack into these. So I would start out with the contiguous universe or a psychic reader mm. and mm -hmm. uh, see how I was all excited with many of the interviews that I did and have a chance to give back. That's what I would do. Bookstoread.com mm. forward slash Michael hyphen Brian takes you right to these uh, all the different places you can get them, whether you want them in uh, uh, an ebook or paper book. Mm -hmm. So, and I'm off to writing more. The one I'm finishing up is um, what is it? England, the UK. I have a number of different destination books that are pulling together the best informative stories I can both good and some not so good for different destinations too. Uh, not uh, England on $5 a day, but uh, a lot of, there's a lot of material submitted to me on um, inspirational psychic things, past life stuff uh, that happens in a particular place. So England, as you know, attracts people to ancient monuments. Mm -hmm. And I think people, to some extent, are pulled by potentially previous existences that mm -hmm. they may have had. That's just one of many experiences. I can't stop interviewing people. And I think my epitaph on my grave is, Michael could always use another story. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a good place to end it. Oh, thank you I for having it. me as a guest of course thank you for sharing everything that you shared and i would love to 
pick your mind on past live things sometimes because that's so fascinating to me. Maybe but, another time. I'm not yeah. sure I know a whole lot about some of these subjects, but I'm happy to appear again as a guest, maybe yes. on a slightly different variation on the theme. Yeah, I So love just that. let me let me know. Thank you I for will. this opportunity. It's been of fun. Of course. Thank you so much. I hope you have a beautiful day on Bainbridge Island too. <laughs> Thank you. Have Talk a great soon. day too. Bye, Bye. Michael.